you guys, uh, you guys sound, am I on okay? You guys sound really good. Who needs a song leader, huh? That's as good as me, brother. That's, uh, yeah, as good as Stu, right? There you go. Gang, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're here today. And uh, I'm excited about what God has uh, kind of laid on my heart and what we're going to be studying. I want you to take your Bible, and I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 20, okay? Uh, take your Bible. I hope you brought it. And I want you to turn to Matthew 20. I want to talk to you this morning on the challenge of grace. And I want to tell you kind of where the, the message came from. On the July 4th holidays, we, we went home. And uh, I had the, when we go home, we just, the old men sit around and talk. You know, we get chairs. We all run for our chairs. And uh, we just sit around and talk, and we talk about the problems in the world. We know them really well. And then we talk about how we can fix them. We think we know that pretty well, okay? But as we were, two of my brother-in-laws and I, and by the way, I told the first service, I might as well tell you, this is on my wife's side of the family, and they're all crazy on that side, okay? Uh, actually, uh, one of them married my cousin, so there's a little bit of craziness on my side, but we won't go into that, Okay? But we were, we were sitting around talking, and as old men do, we began to talk about some of the challenges we're facing as a nation, and, and we agree on them. We, uh, we agree at the speed of the anti-Godism in America, growing by leaps and bounds, I think we'd agree. We talked about the, the speed of the homosexual movement and how, how challenging that is, and how hard I think it is for us Christians, um, maybe even conservative evangelical Christians to, to understand all of that and get our head around all of that and the speed and the momentum that it seems to be uh, almost engulfing our nation and, and, and we, we agreed on that. We, we agreed that the abortion issue is an incredible challenge to our nation today. I was quick to point out, and we agreed on that, we were, I was quick to point out that, you know, we don't know on any given Sunday really how many will be in our churches that because of a situation or a decision in the past, they made a decision to end a life, and they're wrestling through that, and they're struggling through that. Uh, we, we agree it's wrong, Right. Uh, but at the same time, there are those who are really having a hard time, and we need to be careful how we, we approach that. I, at least I, I want to be. Sometimes I know I get strong, and that's what I was telling them. I, I know I come on strong sometimes, but my heart is breaking for those who have gone done, uh, through that. We talked about the uh, decreasing Christian liberty in our nation. And people, our rights are being challenged today in the Christian community. However, as brother-in-laws from the other side of the family that are all crazy will do, there were some things we disagreed on. In fact, we got into what I'm going to call a healthy argument, and it was. It was healthy. We didn't throw anything at each other. Uh, I thought about it a few times, but it was healthy. But we disagreed because I made a statement. I said, you know, I'm suggesting that really we're no better 
than the one spewing all the vicious, militant attacks against ungodliness, except for one thing, and that is God's grace that's been extended to us. And they had a little trouble with that, you know. I suggested to them that we're no different and we're no better. We're just forgiven. And I think that's important. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 said, Such were some of you outlined some of the, the, the evil things, the ungodly things. And he said, But such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. And so I suggested to them that, that lost people are just doing what's normal. They're doing what lost people do. But the real challenge facing our nation is in the church arena where Christians, so-called Christians, are living like non-Christians. I suggested that when God sends judgment, and I think He's going to, in fact, there are some theologians today who really believe that that God's restraining hand of grace is being drawn back, and they may be right. They're smart men, deep theologians, suggesting that that's already happening. And I, I just suggested when that ha- if and when that happens, maybe we ought to consider that it's the, the, the church's fault. First Peter 4 says that judgment begins at the house of God. Now, they didn't like that. I understand that. Uh, I don't know that... I like it myself, but I believe that's right. And then we invariably got into a discussion, and you don't ever do this. But anytime old men don't have anything better to do, they sit in their chairs and they start talking. And invariably, Sodom and Gomorrah will come up. You know what I'm talking about? So we got in this discussion about Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and one of my brother-in-laws is kind of strong, and he just began to blast all the evilness that was going on in Sodom and how God was tired of it and God going to rain down judgment and it's all going to happen to the United States. And that may very well be happening, but I injected something that kind of set it off a little bit. I said, you know, it's amazing to me that uh, Abraham in his discussion with God said, you know, God, if you can find ten godly people, would you destroy Sodom and God said, you know what, Adam? If I can find ten godly people, I won't destroy Sodom. Sodom got destroyed. Why? And I said, maybe I shouldn't have, but I said, well, I think it's because there weren't even ten godly people. And they didn't like that. But you know, gang, that's what the Bible says, doesn't it? It doesn't say that Sodom, I understand they're full of evil people and God hates evil and God is holy and just and can't even look upon evil and and, and judges evil. Uh, And I understand all that, man. That's why we have a cross. That's why we have the atonement. That's why there was blood spilt upon the cross of Calvary, right? But the Bible doesn't say that that in that text with Sodom and Gomorrah. It says there wasn't at least ten godly people. Or he would have stayed judgment. I tell you what I think. I think 
the challenge facing America today is an ungodly church, you see. I don't know if you watch, I like to watch Huckabee, you may not. I like Huckabee, I'll tell you why. He's the only, well, he's a Baptist preacher, you know. I like that. Uh, I like Huckabee because he's the only one, seems like to me, in Washington that'll stand up and say the problem with our nation's sin, you know. Why don't, we're trying to figure all this out. Only Huckabee, I think, is the only one that I know that says it's sin. And he had uh, that actor on that, Voight, what's his name, John Voight? He had him on last night, and, and part of their discussion was fascinating to me. He said that uh, in the last, I believe it was the last election, uh, only 30% of Christians voted. Hello, church. 30, if, if 60% of Christians would register and vote, we'd sweep the nation. You follow where I'm going with that? But just 30% registered and 30% voted. And do you know he said that out of that 30%, 20% of the 30 voted for people who have unbiblical positions. So we have Christians that are staying home, but those who do go, there's a percentage of them, like 20%, that are voting for unbiblical people. That they don't, they call themselves Christians. I don't know that. I don't know their heart. But they have unbiblical values. Their biblical worldview is skewed. Do you think I'm right or wrong with my brother-in-laws? Because if you think I'm wrong, I'll call and apologize. But I really think the challenge facing you and facing me is we have a church that has been so accommodating to the world and the greatness of the world that we've lost our standards. Now listen, I believe we ought to stand against homosexuality. You've heard me. I get too hard on it sometimes. But, but we need to do it in a principled way like Jesus did. There was no doubt in our minds, was there, that Jesus stood for godliness. Jesus stood for truth. But he did it in a way that commanded attention. And that's kind of the challenge for me, uh, because we have to stand how we stand pretty important. Let me tell you what I think, gang. I think that it's easy to dislike people that are not like you, not like me. And I think it's easier to dislike people that are not like you when you fail to understand that there's no difference in them or you, apart from grace. And so I want to suggest to you today, in the text we're going to read today, I want to suggest to you that it's really, really hard to get our head around grace. Well, that's been on my mind since July 4th. And this week, I think it was Monday in my quiet time, I was reading... Matthew 20, the parable that we're going to deal with today. And I thought, you know, man, I wish I'd read that before we had our discussion. And I thought, you know, this would be a cool topic for us to discuss today. The parable of, now some, most call it labors in the vineyard. That's what my Bible said. Most of the commentaries I read called it the parable of the workers or the parable of the laborers. I think all those guys are wrong. I think Warren Wearsby's wrong. I think it's a parable of the landowner. 
And so I'm going to change the title to the parable of the landowner. We're going to read it. I'm going to point out some things. I need to make a couple observations to you, though, out of the parable before we read, okay? The first thing we've got to do is we've got to set this parable in its immediate context. And so as you, with your Bible open, I want you just to notice in chapter 9, you probably don't have time to read it all, but, but there's the rich young ruler that comes, says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus deals with that, trying to draw him to the understanding it's not by works, it's by grace. But then Peter says, hey, Jesus, we've left everything. What are we going to get? Now that's a grace question or a grace statement. It has nothing to do, I mean, it's a works statement. It has nothing to do with grace. Right after the parable, James and John's mother comes and begins to politic, trying to get her boys a good place in the kingdom. That's a works response. It's not a grace response. And so, again, with the context, I think what we would say is it sure is hard for people to get their head around grace. And when you can't get your head around grace or when you struggle getting your head around grace, it's easy to cast rocks or throw rocks at other people forgetting that you were and are just like them apart from God's grace working in your life. The second observation I want to make is kind of more of a question is this. We have to answer this question. Is this parable about rewards for kingdom service? Or is this parable about entrance into the kingdom? So let me just deal with it. This is a salvation parable. And what Jesus talks about when he gives to us the parable is that God grants grace in his fullness. He doesn't partial out grace in calculated portions. So what I want you to understand, it's all divine grace, dear people, or it's nothing at all, okay? It's not metered out. God gives grace in its fullness even if we have trouble accepting it. Even if it seems unfair or unequal at times. Even if we can't fully understand it. Even if it makes us mad at what point it's granted and to whom it's granted. In fact, that was this weekend's biggest argument. They don't deserve it, but I do. I've lived all my life. And when you have that kind of attitude, then it ceases to be grace. It becomes a work-based type relationship with God. Now, I hope I've whetted your appetite, okay? Would you stand in honor of God's Word? And we're going to read beginning Matthew 20 through verse 16, and then I'm going to, I'll make some comments. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius, a denarius is a day's wage, Okay, And by the way, this first group is the only group in which he negotiated anything. This is where he set the wages for that group, okay? So he agreed to a denarius, set them into his vineyard. He went out about the third hour, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard. Whatever's right, I'll give you. And they went. He went out about the sixth and then the ninth and did the same. 
He went out about the 11th hour. That's one hour before quitting time, gang. He went out. He found others standing around, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said, Well, no one's hired us. He said, Go into the vineyard as well. Verse 8, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first, which is kind of interesting injection into the story here, right? Of course, they would do that at the end of each day. We sometimes get paid once a week, twice a, uh, a month, maybe once a month. They would get paid at the end of each day because they had to stop by and get bread to take home. That's what they still, my son, they buy bread every day in Macedonia, just the way it is, okay? Okay, where was I? Oh, verse 9, we'll start, okay. When those hired about the 11th hour came and each one received a denarius, when those hired first came, they thought, can't you see them? They thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, this is, I told the first group, I believe it, this is so Baptist. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner. I'm going to come back to that. Saying, these last men have worked only one hour. You made them equal to us. We borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and he said, friend, I didn't do you any wrong. I met her out justice. I told you what I was going to do for you. Did you not agree with me? Take what's yours. Go. But if I wish to give to this last man the same as you, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious? Because I'm generous. So the last shall be first and the first last. Father, incredible story. Don't know that we will ever fully understand it. Don't know that I got it totally. When we leave here today, we may not either. But God, it's worth exploring. Because it, it rocks our concept of relationship. Lord, everybody in this room has some kind of idea there's nothing free. you got to work. We've been told by our parents, you got to work hard for what you get. And then we have a story that just is full of grace. And so I pray you'll help me understand it a little better as I share it. I pray you'll help us as we leave here understand it so that we could live it. Lord, it's not a license to go out and indulge. But it is an admonition from you to go out and live the grace life, to celebrate grace for your honor and for your glory in a way that the lost world will see the church living in purity and in hope. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, let's be seated. Let's keep our, keep our Bibles open. Okay, let me kind of give you a, a, an American summary here. Okay, uh, an English summary. We have a sovereign who owns the vineyard. Okay, He's the landowner. It's his farm. You with me? At harvest, he goes out seeking workers, and he agrees to hire some at a day's wage at 6 o'clock in the morning. He goes out at 9 o'clock in the morning. He goes out at noon. He goes out at 3 p.m. and he hires more. Finally, he goes out at 5 p.m. 
which is one hour before quitting time, and he hires more. He never discusses wages except with the first group, okay? Now, at the end of the day, he says it's time to settle up. He begins with the last. They get a full day's wage, even though they work for only one hour. Guess what? The first workers were thinking. That's why I said this is so Baptist. What do you think they're thinking, huh? When they got just the amount that they agreed on, guess what they were thinking? Hmm? That we don't have to guess. Verse 11 says what? They grumbled, okay? In fact, they said this. The last were made equal to us, and we borne the, bur- the burden and felt the heat all the day. It's kind of like there's a Baptist business. I'm so glad we don't have business meetings because it's not biblical. But think back to when Baptists had business meetings to vote on how much toilet paper to buy. You remember those days? And so there's this business meeting taking place, and there's this brand new Christian or this brand new member. And they have a vote. But then there's a member who has been a member for like 50, 100 years. <laughs> I was born in this church. My mama grew up in this church. My grandmama grew up in this church. And all I get is one vote. And this person who just came in and just joined, they get a vote. That's kind of the scenario going on here. Now, the word grumble means to mumble. It means to get ready to rumble. And many a church has rumbled, huh? It means to gripe. It means to complain and criticize. I'll tell you, it's just not right. It's not right, I'm telling you. It just ain't right. You know what that tells us? It's so human, right? But let me tell you what it tells us. It tells us that it's hard to accept grace sometimes, huh? You serve God all of your life, as you should. There's joy in that, right? You serve God all of your life, and then a renegade, hellraiser, comes in. Let's bring it into the current term. A homosexual gets saved is granted eternal life, and for the sake of our little argument, let's say they receive eternal life on their deathbed. And we say, they get as much as I get because I've served and worked all of my life, and they have lived like the dog all of their life, and right at the end, that last hour, they get as much as me. Yeah, it's a call to grace, folks. That's why we have trouble with it, but that's what the Bible says. It is called grace. That thief on the cross got in by the skin of his teeth, and we scream, it ain't right. We wouldn't do it on Sunday because we're too spiritual on Sunday, but we'll do it on Monday. That ain't right. And while we're saying it, we're forgetting that we got in on the skin of our teeth because we just got in on the same basis as they got in 
And that's called the grace, the sovereign grace of Almighty God. Can I remind you that at the foot of the cross, it's all equal. It's called sinners receiving grace that are saved into eternal life. Well, what do we get from the parable? Let me give you three things quickly, okay? And like, let me remind you. Let me tell you what I've already told you, okay? Um, I don't think it's... That, I'm going to mention some things about the workers and all that, but this, I don't think it's anything to do with the workers, man. I think it's to do with, with the landowner. I think this parable is about God, okay? And so that's where I built my structure of the parable. The first thing, I, immediately we, we see a sovereignty, huh? It's all about the farmer, the vineyard owner. He's in charge to do whatever he desires to do for whatever he owns, when he decides who he wanted, when he wanted, how he wanted. Beloved, is his business. You agree? He owns it. Now, we may get confused a little. I do. We may not understand everything. Our understanding may be dull at times. But I think everybody in this room would agree we can't question his right to do what he wants because he owns it all. And gang, just because I may not understand everything or just because you might not understand everything, it doesn't make it wrong. Truth is truth whether I understand it or not. And even though I may struggle with some of these issues of grace, and while it may not fit in the box that I've constructed, the fact of the matter is that doesn't make it wrong. It means I'm dumb. It means that God understands it. And we understand from this thing that the landowner is in charge to do whatever the landowner wants to do. He's in control. He's sovereign. Now, in biblical theology... We call that election, but that word scares us, you know? But when you think about it, we really don't want it any other way, do we? Because you see, deep down in our hearts, we know we can't save ourselves, can we? We know we don't deserve salvation. Deep down in our heart, we know we don't merit or can work hard enough for it. It's a beautiful thing. To be part of God's chosen people. And I want to suggest to you today, don't argue it. Celebrate it. Let it humble you. And let yourself try to share with others the beauty of what only God can do. Because He's the landowner and He's sovereign. Oh, folks, it's good to be chosen, isn't it? Can I use an illustration that I used five, six, seven years ago? You've forgotten it anyway, so it'll be new. But let me use it. I, I remember, I think I was preaching through Romans 8, um, 28, 29, 30 or something. We were talking about this uncomfortable term, and I, I used the illustration about when I was a kid growing up. You may not have noticed, but I'm not very big. Well, I mean, I'm not big this way. I'm getting big that way. But I, you know, I wasn't, you know, when they wanted to pick out a team, two guys would be the, the head guys, and there'd be, the rest of us would be in a long line. And it generally went like this in size. And somewhere down here was Tom, you know. And so what would happen is these two guys would say, all right, you choose first, and they'd look at the big guy, you know, Steve Arndt, Roe Garcia. And they'd say, Eugene, I'll take Eugene. You know, and then here's us guys. 
you know. And eventually they'd come down after the good guys had been taken, and then all of a sudden one would say, Tom. i go, Tom. And there might be two guys left, and I'd look over and say, yeah, baby, me, right? <laughs> I remember being chosen. I was just at the tail end. But I'll tell you, sure feels good to be included. Hmm? Feels good to be chosen. This parable talks about God's right to do whatever God wants to do. Whenever God wants to do it, whether I understand it or not, and I ought to celebrate it. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus today, I tell you, you ought to celebrate the fact that out of this mass of humanity and out of this, out of this pit of depravity, God set his affections upon you and God called you to himself and God saved your soul and he expects you to celebrate it and live like it in a world that desperately needs to see it. Number two, we see a sufficiency. Just a moment here. The owner supplied all that was needed for those he called. Now I want you to notice something interesting. At the end of Matthew 19, we find these words. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. And then when he ended the parable, he says the last shall be first, the first shall be last. It's like there's, there's two statements that are the same backwards and they're like bookends to the parable. Last week, if you were with us, you know how good of a job Don did in his salvation message. Great job. I told the first service, I'm blowing smoke because if I blow smoke, he'll be encouraged to do more and I can do less. Okay. But let me tell you what Don was saying last week. He was saying that God is able to save to the uttermost those who come through Christ. That's a message the world needs to hear. That's a message the world needs to see. You see, gang, the cross was the sufficient penalty of your sin, my sin. We must help people understand that, not by judging, but by loving principally. Like I said, Jesus loved principally. He stood his ground with truth, and truth always wins. He loved the unlovely. And while we must stand and proclaim God's truth, the desperate need of our world today is to see Christians standing in truth, loving the unlovely, his sufficiency. Number three, we see his efficiency. Efficiency. Let me ask you a question. Who came into the marketplace looking? Hmm? Who did the selecting? Who did the hiring? Who took the initiative? The landowner did, didn't he? Notice verse 1, 3, 5, 6. The words, he went out. Gang, it is God that injects himself into our world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is God that injects himself into the world because he loves the world. It is God who interferes himself into our lives. I wasn't looking for him when he came grabbing my heart. You weren't looking for him. You were living in your sin, living, loving every moment of it. And God came interfering, didn't he, into your life with the claim of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God loved the world and gave the greatest gift, his son, to die on a cross for your sin, huh? Efficacious in his dealing with man, is he? 
We're not looking, seeking. He's seeking. It's amazing, isn't it? This thing called grace. huh? Notice verse 2. He sent them out. Verse 4. I will give you. Verse 7. You go. Who's the great initiator in this parable? Yes, the landowner. Who's the great initiator in your life? Yes, Almighty God. So the parable speaks about God, His sovereignty, His sufficiency, His efficiency. And beloved, that's what the atonement is all about. The cross, the mercy seat, the blood sacrifice should humble us, should cause us to celebrate, should cause us not to throw stones, but to care about those who are lost. Let me summarize what I got out of it, okay? This parable is not about grapes at all. It's about grace. And I got to tell you, I've learned something in my tenure with God over these years. I've learned that sometimes those who are saved later in life enjoy Him fuller. They seem to realize that they don't deserve it, and yet God grants it. They seem to get it that if God had not injected Himself into their world, they would have never gotten it, and they would be living without any hope, you see. Now, if you're a believer today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if there was a moment in your life experience when you were convicted of your sin and God in His grace drew you to repentance and faith and rocked your world with love, so much so that it's even to this day is affecting the way you live and the way you think. It's affecting your decisions that you are doing your best to try to have a biblical worldview and live the biblical worldview, if you're one of those type that are true born-again believers, somewhere in this parable, you are. Maybe at 6 o'clock, maybe at 9 o'clock, maybe at noon or 3, maybe it's the last hour, but it ought to impact your life. And it ought to make you understand that the bottom line here is whether it's a 5 o'clock person that comes to know Christ or a 6 a.m. person that comes to know Christ, it's all the same. Heaven, listen, heaven ought to be good enough for us. We shouldn't castigate others because of their ignorance. Because we're pretty ignorant in our side. I told you, all those folks on my wife's side of the family are crazy. Some of them on my side kind of crazy. I may be a little crazy. See? But heaven ought to be good enough for us. You know? Now, is it better to start young and work hard? Oh, yeah. Why do you think we put so much effort into our young people? And we put a lot of money. Most of the money we spend is in our children's ministry. I give up my Wednesday night to teach preteens. First of all, I like them a lot better than adults. So, you know, but I, 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 why do we do that? Because it's better to reach them young, teach them to love Jesus, and work hard all their life. 
Yes. Now, with the right attitude. Not judgmental, but with the right attitude. That's right. Okay. But for some, it's as equally important to finish right. Maybe on the deathbed. Maybe right at the end. That's God's business. He owns it all. And if he wants to grant you eternal life at 6 o'clock in the morning or 5 in the p.m., that's his business. Celebrate it. Perhaps a bigger challenge for you is, do you fit the time frames here? Was there a moment in your life at 6 o'clock in the morning? Was there a moment in your life at noon? Was there a time in your life in that early afternoon that the Master came looking for you and found you and saved you? Huh? Now, I'd say to you, if you're not sure, then you're probably not. And if I were you, I'm just suggesting, I did it to my brother-in-law, it didn't end well, but this maybe will. I'm just suggesting to you that maybe you ought to check it out a little bit more. Maybe you ought to talk to your Sunday school teacher. You do go, don't you? Maybe you, ought to, maybe you ought to call one of your pastors. Maybe you ought to talk to your spouse or your best friend. Kids, maybe you ought to talk to your parents. Parents, maybe you ought to have enough ability to respond back to them. Huh? All I'm saying to you is, gang, what's important is the landowner. When he grants it, well, you have to receive it. You receive it by faith. You receive it by repentance. But it's all a gift. It's his right to give. And it'll absolutely rock your world. I have to tell you, one of the blessings of being a, a pastor, this is our 18th year, one of the blessings of being a pastor, some, there's some negatives about staying a long time. You've got to have fresh sermons. You know, if I had three-year sermons, I could just go every, every three years, change the church. And, man, I'd... I could fish all the time, you know. Um, but there's incredible blessings. One of the blessings is that you get to see people birth children and watch them guide those kids up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. I'm watching some young folks that are becoming young adults that love God. They probably love God better than mom and daddy who raised them. I'm watching that. I get to see that. One of the blessings is that godly people live life and have bad things happen like Francis Young. If this parable was about service, this would be all about her. I, 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 I even thought the other day, if this parable was about service, I'm not sure that I would see Francis in heaven. She'd be so close to the throne and I'd be back in the back. I'd be like that string. Oh, yeah, you, Tom, you know. That's part of the blessings, seeing godly people celebrate grace and live their life. One of the burdens is wondering, do your people, do they really know grace? Do they really know Christ? And if they were to wing their flight out into eternity, while their name may be on the roll of Indian Springs, is it really on the roll that matters? And so I would just suggest to you today, I don't care if you're on the roll of Indian Springs or not when it comes to eternity. Oh, but I care 
whether you're on the road, on the, on the roll of heaven's book. And I think you ought to check that out. I think that, that you ought to check out the scripture. I think you need to determine, ascertain whether you really belong to Christ or not. I just think you ought to do that. Okay. Well, we need to pray, don't we? Stu's going to come, and those of you who are to be baptized, I'm going to ask you to slip out. We're going to have a time of invitation, a time of response. And this is your opportunity to deal with some stuff if you need to deal with it. Uh, if you want to come pray, you can do that. If you want to join our church, we ask you to come forward. We'd be glad to receive you. We love you the way you are. Maybe other things are going on. Here's an opportunity for you. Father, I love you. I love this parable. I have to tell you, I don't understand it all. It sure grabs me a little bit. Man, what a story. Man, what a story. Thank you, God, for being God. Thank you for being in control. Thank you for your ruling. I'm so glad that you're ruling and not all these clowns we see trying to lead our country. God, you're leading. You're in control. Help us to have enough sense to understand it and follow it. Maybe today, right now, God, you're dealing in a heart. Crystallize and clarify to them what you're doing. And then, God, give them courage to be obedient in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.